Okay, I'm on a couple of minutes early. We'll wait for everybody else to get done eating or something. Uh, hope that you're having a great week. They all kind of run together, don't they? <laughs> for some reason, it seems. Um, but uh, glad you're joining us tonight. I'm going to wait just a minute for some more people to catch up. Um, good to see Carol here tonight. Thanks, Carol. It's always encouraging to see people letting the rest of us know that we're together. Hey, Matt. But yeah, we're uh, getting a lot of rain in Plant City, so welcome to my living room again. Nice to be in your living room tonight. I want to start pretty much on time um, at about seven o'clock. So it's just about seven o'clock. If you noticed on the announcement that I put uh, out. Uh, this afternoon, I'm um, going to be talking about some of the crazy things that Jesus said. And uh, I, I actually want to start with an icebreaker. And I usually do start with an icebreaker uh, just for a couple things. One, because, I don't know, I always think they're kind of interesting. And give people a chance to, to get finished with dinner uh, at 7 o'clock. But here's my icebreaker. Um I went and looked and tried to get some information on what people should have memorized by the time they're an adult. You know, a list of things that every adult should know just from memorization. And because I wondered with smartphones, do we, do we memorize things anymore? And I came up with a list of things, a, a, a top 10 list, I guess, uh, of things that people should have memorized by the time they're adults. And as I looked through the list, most of the things I had memorized, there was a few that I had to think a little bit, but there's also, I, I kind of realized this is all stuff that you memorize when you're in grade school or junior high. So yeah, it's not that we haven't memorized it, it's just that we've forgotten it. But let me share with you the, the top 10 things that every adult person should have committed to memory. Here you go. Number one, obviously, your social security number. You don't have your social security number memorized by the time you're an adult. You probably don't have a social security number. Number two, um, multiplication tables. I'm hoping people still memorize their multiplication tables. We always have our phone with us, but uh, I hope that you've memorized multiplication tables. Here's the number three thing that this list that I found says that everyone should memorize before they become adults. That is different ways to say thank you in, in different languages how to say thank you in different languages. And I'm not sure that's that important. I counted up five different languages that I can say thank you in. And to tell you the truth, I've only ever said thank you in two, I think. So, but that was on the list. Um, number four, the name and order of the planets. You should have that memorized. Man very early made jars stand up neatly, period. Although I don't know if Pluto's a period, uh, 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 planning again or not, but maybe. 
Um, birthdays and anniversaries is number five. You should have committed to memory several birthdays and anniversaries of family members and close friends. I was talking over dinner with some of these things and um, my family, Martha and the two boys were there and they asked me if I knew all their birthdays. I got all the birthdays right. I got a little confused on who was who, but I got all the birthdays right at least. Um, number six, and this one really is kind of going away, important contacts. You should have memorized the phone number or an address of some of the important people in your life. And I'm not sure we do that anymore. I know my phone number. I know my wife's phone number. I know my phone number for when I was growing up as a kid. Um, I know the phone number of my first girlfriend. But I don't know my daughter's phone number or either of my son's phone number. Um, I don't know anybody's cell phone number except mine and Martha's because they're just in my contacts. Uh, but you should have that memorized. Number seven, you should have memorized by now at least three poems. There you go. You need to get on that. If you haven't done that yet, at least three poems you should have memorized. Number eight, you should have memorized the continents and the oceans. I hope that you have memorized somewhere the, the seven continents and the five oceans. Uh, if you haven't, you're, you're behind. Uh, number nine, this surprised me. It was on the list, uh, this particular list I found, said you should have committed to memory righty, tidy, lefty, loosey which I don't think you have to memorize that. I think that's just muscle memory, isn't it? You know, you, you turn into the right, it gets tighter, turn things to the left, it gets looser. I don't know. Uh, but then number 10, the Great Lakes. You should have committed to memory uh, the five Great Lakes. So there you go. Those are just some things that you should have committed to memory. I was talking about this with Martha, and Martha said, you know what you need to share when you're talking about committing things to memory, and we're getting to something, by the way. You need to share the Andy Griffith episode where Barney uh, quotes the preamble to the Constitution. And if you know me at all, you know Andy Griffith's show is one of my all-time favorite shows. I think Barney Fife is still the funniest guy on television. So I want to show you a about a two-and-a-half-minute clip of Barney proving that he has the preamble memorized. Again, this is gonna tie in so beautifully to the lesson tonight, so pay close attention. I'm gonna try, again, Matt, do not make fun of me. I'm gonna try my high-tech uh, uh, technology here, and uh, you're gonna be amazed at what I can do with technology here. I'm gonna turn the uh, my laptop around and face my uh, television. Okay, here you go. Take a look. <laughs> my old history book. Bernard P. Fife. This book belongs to Bernard P. Fife. If lost or stolen, please return to Bernard P. Fife. Signed, Bernard P. Fife. <laughs> Your book? Yeah. Look at the next page. The History of the United States of America by Bernard P. Fife. <laughs> Well, remember how we used to paste our own names over the authors? Oh, yeah. Well, you've had this a long time. And you want to know something? There's things right there in that book that I learned that I still remember to this day. Oh, come on. To this day. It's amazing how that stuff stays with you. Once you learn something, it never leaves you. It stays locked up tight right in the old loop. <laughs> Does, huh? Sure. Here, let me show you. Constitution of the United States. Now, we had to memorize the preamble of that. I still remember. You do? Yeah. 
Here, I'll show you. Hold the book on me. Okay. All right, go ahead. Constitution of the United States. <laughs> Give me the first word and I'll find the rest. Okay, we. We. We? Are you sure? I'm looking right at We. We! The. The. We the. We the. of liberty to ourselves and our posterity to ordain and establish this constitution for the United States, United States of America. America. <laughs> you want to run through that again or do you think you got it? I got it. There you go. One of my favorite, one of my all-time favorite uh, Barney clips is him trying to show that he has memorized the preamble. Um, talking about things that we've memorized and things that we know. I want to share with you also, we're going to get started in just a second here, but I want to share with you, um, I found another list of the most memorized scripture uh, across Christendom. Um, these are 10 scriptures that you should have committed to memory. Number 10. Romans 8, 28. You know that all things work together for good to those who, uh, who love him, called according to his purpose. You should know Romans 8, 28. Um, number nine, the Beatitudes. I'm not sure too many people still have the Beatitudes memorized, but at some point you probably memorized the Beatitudes if you're watching a Bible class on Wednesday night, Matthew chapter 5. Uh, number eight, the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, Deuteronomy chapter 5. At some point... You should have memorized the Ten Commandments. Uh, number seven. This one surprised me. Romans 3.23. 
You should have memorized Romans 3.23. Daryl Barry knows what it says. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, number six, Jeremiah chapter 29, 11. Most people have memorized that, especially around graduation time. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Um, here you go, the top five passages uh, most memorized uh, by, by, by people. Uh, Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I think Tim Tebow with his eye black kind of helped that. The number four most memorized scripture, the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. Every time I hear the 23rd Psalm, I think of Willard Collins, who was the president at Lipscomb when Martha and I were there. And he had this deep voice, and he would say, the Lord is my shepherd. And I thought, man, I wish I had a voice like that. Um, the number three most memorized scripture the Lord's Prayer, um, Matthew chapter 6, where we're headed tonight, by the way. The number two most memorized scripture, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the number one most memorized scripture, I'm sure you've guessed, and I didn't have to tell you it was number one, John 3-16. We have been talking a little bit, there, there's a reason for all of that buildup. Um, we've been talking about teachings of Jesus. In the last two weeks, I guess, we have been talking about things that he said in the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm going to stay in the Sermon on the Mount tonight. Um, just thinking about where to go next and what to talk about next. And there's so much good stuff in the Sermon on the Mount. And there's so much in there that we, uh, you know, I mentioned, I think, a week or so ago. We know this, these three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, so well. And we've picked it apart and, and we've, you know, classes galore. But there's so much in there and it's so good. And I think there's so many things that we have heard so many times that we don't really appreciate the genius of the teaching. And we don't appreciate just how different and how radical Jesus' teaching was on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and I'm going to prove it to you. I'll prove to you that that there's things in the Sermon on the Mount and passages that we have memorized that we know really well that we don't really pay close enough attention to. I told you that the number three most memorized scripture in uh, the Bible, according to somebody's list, is the Lord's Prayer. You know the Lord's Prayer. We all have memorized the Lord's Prayer. Again, this is a Wednesday night class online. I know that you know it. When I was in high school, before every football and basketball game, the team got together and we recited the Lord's Prayer. Um, I want you to impress your spouse. I want you to impress your kids. I want you to impress your parents. I want you to say the Lord's Prayer along with me. I'm going to use the King James Version because I never read King James anymore, but that's the one I learned it on. Uh, it's a beautiful translation. So say it with me. Our Father who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. Stop right there. Hit the pause button for just a minute. Forgive us our debts. And you know what comes next, right? We know the prayer. We know what comes next. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. You might have learned it. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. 
Jesus says, here's how you pray. Here's a good thing to pray for. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We know that so well. But are you really sure you want to pray that prayer? Are you really sure that you want to ask God to forgive you in the same way that you forgive other people? Are you sure that that's what you want God's will in your life to be? It's, I think it's a legitimate question. I want you to think about that one person who has hurt you the most. I want you to think about that, that one person. Get, get kind of a, a, maybe a name in, in your mind. Uh, somebody who has wounded you. Somebody who has betrayed you. Somebody who has broken your heart. Somebody who you're, you're just really irritated with right now. Somebody you say, that's, that's a hard person to love. That's a hard person to like. That's a really hard person to love. I want you to think about that person. And then think about what Jesus is telling you to pray. God, would you treat me? Would you think about me? Would you act towards me in the same way that I think toward and act toward that person? The same way that I treat that person. Would you treat me that way? God, would you have the same heart towards me as I have toward that person? Makes it a pretty convicting prayer, doesn't it? We recite the prayer all the time. Uh, we love the prayer. I'm not sure we always live the prayer. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus deals with some really convicting stuff. And he deals with some really deep stuff, too. You know, he talks about um, marriage and divorce, and he, he talks about sexual sin. And then in the section that we're going to look at tonight, he starts sharing some really strange teaching. Now, it's not strange to us because we are so familiar with it. Most of you if, you, if you haven't memorized these scriptures, at least you can quote them kind of like Barney. Once I get you started, you can take off with it. But Jesus is going to string together a bunch of teaching that we listen to very differently than those first people in the audience would have listened to. Um, it was really out there, very countercultural. Um, he's going to talk a lot about how to handle hurt. Um, he's, he's kind of sharing a, a different focus, kind of taking conventional wisdom and comparing it to what life in the kingdom is going to look out like. So Matthew chapter 5 is where we are. Uh, verse 38 is where we're going to start. Matthew 5, verse 38. Here's what Jesus says. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Again, that's a verse everybody can quote. Even if you don't know it's from the Bible, you know, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Actually, Jesus was quoting scripture when he said that. He's quoting uh, Exodus chapter 21. In Exodus chapter 21, actually goes much further than just an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. In Exodus 21, it says eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, Wound for wound, bruise for bruise. And, and you hear that, you read that, and you think, wow, that is like barbaric. I mean, why would God say that? What's that doing in God's word? Well, well, God said that because God knows the human heart. 
He knows us. And he knows if you hurt me, my natural response, my natural reaction is, I want to hurt you. How much do I want to hurt you? As much as I can get away with. Because that's just kind of human nature. But God is not telling us, seek revenge whenever you can. Actually, in Exodus 21, when God said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, hand for hand, all those things, he's actually putting that into uh, existence to, uh, to kind of curtail retaliation. He's kind of saying, hey, there's going to be punishment, but the punishment has to be proportional. I mean, if somebody knocks out your tooth, you, you can't kill them. No, it's got to be proportional punishment. Um, no, again, God knows our heart. And he knows if you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back. And then you're going to hurt me back. And it's just going to keep escalating. And it's going to spin out of control. And you know, it'll be a mess. A uh, ton of research done on this. I read about uh, a study where they, they took people and they paired them off into twos. And they gave them this little device where you put uh, this little bit of painful pressure on a finger. A little thing that fit over their finger. And they could, they could kind of control how much pain the other person was feeling. And the instructions were to inflict some pain on your partner. And then the partner's instruction was inflict the exact same amount of pain back to the person who hurt you. Here's what they found. Every time, the person who returned the pain always returned more pain than what they received. In other words, the hurt inflicted was always more than the hurt received. You've heard it said, you know, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You hurt me, I hurt you. And then Jesus comes along with this kingdom focus. He says, I know you've always heard this. I know that's the way you've always operated. But we're going to do things differently in the kingdom. Let me share with you another option. It's going to be crazy, I know. You're going to say it will never work. You're going to say nobody's ever going to do it. But just let me share with you another option. Verse 39, Matthew 5. But I tell you, you you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, tooth for truth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. That is crazy teaching, isn't it? If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the left cheek. Is Jesus saying that we're supposed to just be doormats? (laughs) Is Jesus saying, hey, if somebody hits you, you got to take it, man. You just got to let them wail away on you, you know, until you... So their arm gets tired or something. No. Obviously, he's not telling us that. What he's teaching is, in the past, when someone hurt you, when someone offended you, when someone upset you, you either either paid them back in kind, or you um, recoiled in fear, or you ran away. That's what you did. But in the kingdom, we're not going to do that. We're not going to devolve into mutual hostility. This isn't going to be about a violence kind of thing. Uh, Your honor and your safety, they rest in the hands of God. This whole thing, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, you know, it doesn't really work that well. So God has given us this security and this confidence. In the kingdom, we're going to be better than that. We're not going to do that in the kingdom. And then he makes another odd uh, statement in verse 40. Very next verse. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let them have your coat as well. You know, we 
we Americans, we think that we invented the lawsuit, right? Uh, we didn't invent it. We, we probably perfected it. But people have been suing each other for a long time. And Jesus says, if someone sues you for your tunic, give them your coat as well. A tunic was a shirt. If someone's suing you for the shirt off your back, how much do you think you have? Not too much, right? This is a poor person that Jesus is talking about. And Jesus tells this, these poor people, if someone sues you for your tunic, you go ahead and give them your coat as well. And we brush right by that. We've heard that a million times. Yeah, okay. I understand the teaching. I bet you don't. The people who were listening to Jesus, they wouldn't have brushed right by it. They would have been flabbergasted at that statement. And I'll tell you why. Most people, especially the people that were listening to Jesus on the hillside that day, in the first century, they only owned three pieces of clothing. They, they wore a loincloth, you know, we call it underwear. Um, they wore a tunic, which was an inner long kind of flowing shirt. We might call it like a big t-shirt. And they wore an outer coat, an outer cloak. So Jesus comes along on the hillside and he says, if someone sues you for your tunic, for your t-shirt, go ahead and give them your cloak as well. What would that leave you in? It would leave you in your loincloth. That would leave you in your underwear. This is a very shame-based society that Jesus is speaking into. But I understand that I wouldn't want to be stranded with just my underwear either. Now, this, this, is pretty, this is pretty crazy teaching. Um, yeah. And then, what's he have in mind? Why did Jesus teach this? Maybe he's saying, you know, in the kingdom, it's not going to be just about stuff. In the kingdom, our stuff isn't going to matter that much. You know, people have always been divided into the haves and the have-nots. Maybe he's saying, in the kingdom, we're not going to separate people that way. We're not going to divide people into the haves and the have-nots. But I also think that, that Jesus is teaching that, that even, even the poor, even the people who are weak, even the people who are struggling, the powerless, you're not that weak. You're not powerless. You're not some victim seeking revenge. Um, there's another kind of life available to you. And then in the very next verse, he shares some more crazy teaching. Verse 41, Matthew 5. If someone forces you to go a mile, go with them two miles. Go the second mile. And again, if you're a Wednesday night person tuning in online, you probably have heard this a lot of times. There was a Roman law that any Roman soldier by law could uh, force a Jewish person to carry their heavy load one mile. That was the law. A soldier could force a Jewish person to carry their pack one mile. Just one, not two. And Jesus says, well, if someone wants to uh, tell you to carry their pack for one mile, you say, oh, well, get the end of the mile. You want me to keep going? You want me to keep carrying it? By the way, the Jews hated this law. They hated this. They hated the Romans. They certainly hated being singled out and, and asked to carry their stuff for a mile. You know, who does that? You know, no one does that. No one lives that way. And Jesus says, not yet, <laughs> but they will. In the kingdom, 
That's how we're going to treat our enemy. In the kingdom, we're just going to serve them to death. And then in verse 42, he keeps going. Give to the one who asks you. and Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Okay. Maybe I don't understand the whole historical text of turning the other cheek or getting sued for my shirt or carrying a soldier's pack for a mile. But I can understand the guy who always wants to borrow something, right? We know that guy. You, know, you treat him like a stray dog. Don't make eye contact. You know, if we make eye contact, he's going to want something. He's never going to get rid of him. And Jesus says, you know what? In the kingdom, we're going to look him right in the eye. And we're going to ask, hey, what can I do for you? Do I have anything that you might be able to use? Do I have any of the things that I've been blessed with that maybe I can bless you with? How can I help? And then he says this in verse 43. I'm still in Matthew 5. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain to the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. On a hillside, Jesus teaches to these people. And what he's teaching goes so against everything they've ever been taught. Everything they've ever heard, it goes so against the way they've always lived their life. It is such different teaching. They've never heard anybody teach like this. Turn the other cheek. Someone sues you for your shirt, give them your coat. Um, someone forces you to go a mile, go two miles. Give people more than they want. You know, let them borrow from you. Do more than what's expected. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Man. Nobody taught like that. Nobody said those things. And the question I'm sure they were thinking was, is that even possible? I mean, it makes for a great sermon. Sounds good when you say it, but come on, Jesus. Is it really possible for someone to live like that? Is it really feasible to expect that someone can, can orient their lifestyle the way you're telling us to orient our lifestyle, to treat other people that way, to react that way when we're hurt, to live that way. Can anybody really do that? Anybody put that kind of teaching into their everyday life? Well, one person could. Let me share with you real quickly what I think is, is kind of a uh, interesting, certainly telling thread that runs straight through the Sermon on the Mount and it runs straight to the cross. I want you to think about the very end of Jesus's life, those last few days uh, of Jesus's life. That same hillside teacher who's done so much good, the same teacher on the hillside who's helped so many people, that same teacher on the hillside who has blessed so many people, the last week of his life, he's going to find out just how much his enemies hate him. Remember, on the hillside, 
He said, if anyone slaps you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. Well, on the final day of his life, his enemies surround him. And Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 26, verse 67, then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? I wonder if Jesus in that moment thought back to that day on the hillside. And I wonder if Jesus knew, and I, I know he did, that this whole slap in the face thing, it wasn't just some hypothetical situation. Now, of course, he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set them free. That's how the song goes. It's not exactly how scripture goes, but he certainly could have called 10 legions of angels, but he doesn't. He turns the other cheek. Remember on the hillside, Jesus says, if someone takes you to court and they want the shirt off your back, go ahead and give them your coat as well. And then one day his enemies took him to court and they drug him through this sham of a trial. And they sentenced him to death. And in the ultimate expression of humiliation, uh, he took his clothes. John chapter 19, verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they divided his clothes among the four of them. They also took his robe, but it was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. So they said, let's not tear it, but throw dice to see who gets it. This fulfilled the scriptures that says they divided my clothes among themselves and threw dice for my robe. So that's what they did. They take him to court. They take his shirt. They strip him. And Jesus says, here, you might as well take my robe, too. You might as well take my coat. I wonder if he remembered talking about the same thing that day on the hillside. And then remember in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, if a Roman soldier comes and makes you carry their things a mile, uh, at the end of the mile, just say, hey, can I go another mile? I'll go further. And then one day the soldiers came for him. And they forced him to carry the cross. And he carried it as far as he could. And when he couldn't carry it any further, the soldiers uh, got a guy named Simon from Cyrene to, to carry it for him. Same law, by the way. They compelled him to carry it. Jesus knew it was coming. One day, soldiers came from Jesus. And he said, I'll go a mile with you. I'll go as far as I can. I'll go farther. If that's what you want. I'll go further. Then on the hillside, Jesus thought, if someone asks you for something, don't turn away. If someone asks you for something, do more than what's expected. Do what you can do. And then that fateful night in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember Jesus praying sweat drops like blood in agony, he prays to the Father, God, if there's any way, would you take this cup from me? I don't want to do it. I don't want to, but if that's what you're asking me to do, not my will, but yours be done. I'll go further. I'll go further. And on the hillside, this teacher with the kingdom focus 
It said, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Come on. Nobody really does that. Nobody really lives that way. It's one thing to say it, but nobody really feels that way. Same teacher with the kingdom focus hung on a cross. And he looked down at all the people who had wounded him. And he looked down at the people who were mocking him. The people who were celebrating his execution. He looked down at the religious leaders who were basking in the glow of their supposed victory. Do you remember what his prayer was? For his enemies? For the people who were persecuting him? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's the teacher on the hillside. That's the Jesus who sat down and spoke to all these people on the side of the hill. And I'm sure a lot of people walked away going, wow, what a great sermon. What great points. But Jesus wasn't teaching a sermon. He was, he was teaching a lifestyle. He was showing us what life in the kingdom was going to look like. And that's the Jesus we follow. And that's the Jesus that we serve. And really, only the love of Jesus can take care of the wounds that, that, that we agonize over. And you think about people that have hurt you. You think about, you know, all the, the anger and the hurt in the world, and the prejudice and, and the hatred. Only the love of Jesus can address that. And I'm so convinced it really is the cross where that gets all turned around. It really is the cross where we see that expression of perfect love. And it's the cross where that ultimate love is found. You know, moving forward this week, chances are nobody's going to slap you on the cheek this week. I hope not. Chances are nobody's going to sue you for some of your clothes. Chances are no soldier is going to grab you and ask you to carry their stuff for a mile. Um, but I guarantee you're going to have some opportunities to put these same practices into, into your life, the same teachings. You're going to have some opportunities to treat other people the same way that Jesus not just told us to treat other people, but the same way that Jesus modeled, the same example that he gave for treating other people. That's the Jesus we serve. Wrapping up tonight, I, I always end with a prayer, and I want to end with a prayer tonight, too. And I actually want to go back to the prayer that I interrupted a little bit ago. The Lord's Prayer, found in Matthew chapter 6. We got started a couple minutes ago, but I, I stopped this before we got through it. But I, I want to pray it uh, tonight as we close. And again, I'm going to, I won't know if you do it or not, but say it with me. You've memorized it. You know it. Uh, and when we get to that part about forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, maybe we can actually pray that with a little more conviction tonight. Let's pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. 
Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Hey, real quick before we uh, sign off tonight, uh, a couple things. I know if you've been tuned into uh, Vital Concern, you're aware of this, a uh, couple of these things already, but got some really important prayer requests that we need to be uh, on top of. Um, we need to be praying for Phil Humphrey. Phil has contracted COVID-19 in, out in um, Utah, I think, out west, a long way from home, uh, by himself. Uh, Lois said he's, he's feeling pretty poorly, uh, so we need to keep Phil in our prayers. Mike and Sherry Cave, who most of us know, uh, both have tested positive for the virus. Um, so there's, uh, and I know that a lot of people, I know Roxanne and uh, Faye, and I know a lot of people have shared that they've got some some really good friends and close family members who have been uh, tested positive and, and are some really health struggles. So boy, let's sure be praying about um, our, our loved ones and our church family and, and just the, uh, the virus that just uh, is starting to get closer and closer to home, obviously. Um, we need to be praying for UC. I learned sort of secondhand that she was dealing with something today and uh, possibly going to the ER. So we need to keep UC in our prayers. Um, uh, Randy Stutzman, my brother, spent the weekend in the uh, hospital. Um, I just talked to Tease today and uh, got a real good report today from the cardiologist. So thank you for those prayers. Um, I'm gonna encourage you one more time. The, the 70 of us are still together. If you aren't involved in a small group, in a, in a Zoom group, try it. Just try it. It is so much fun. They're not long. They're not, uh, you know, you don't have to get dressed up. You don't have to go anywhere. But it is so fun and so encouraging just to get together and see each other, uh, share a thought, share a, you know, a, a devotional, whatever. But uh we're going to have to work to stay connected. And thanks for all the work you've done. I got a, I got a note in the mail today that was super encouraging. So uh, thanks for all the ways that so many of you are keeping us connected. But it's going to take some effort. And I also ask to be praying for leadership as they are working at um, just trying to figure out the best thing to do for, uh, for the family at Bay Area. Um, like I said before, there's a lot of moving pieces going on that you're probably not aware of. But... Uh, they are they are being very prayerful about that. So thanks for being with us tonight. We will still be uh, worshiping virtually on Sunday at 10 o'clock. And I really hope that you uh, sign in there and, and worship with us and share it. And uh, we'll bless each other. Thanks for being with us tonight. See you next time.